0: Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Guerra, and in today's episode, in association with MasterCard, we're looking at everything to do with cross-border payments. Once a source of admin headaches for businesses operating across the world, as well as families separated by international borders, today, cross-border payments are so prevalent that recently, industry research suggests $156 trillion is expected to cross international borders annually by the end of 2022. So, With this staggering amount in mind, We're asking what cross border payments look like today, and also what the challenges exist to still overcome it, and what the future holds for the industry. But before we start, we want to tell you a little bit about something we're cooking up here at 11FS, and a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships, and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union, or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket.
0: Let's get started. Okay, so as always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some more light on all things cross-border payments. Uh, Making a Fintech Insider debut, we've got Stephen Granger, the Executive Vice President at MasterCard. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Hi,
2: Gloria.
0: Yeah, so everyone everyone knows MasterCard. We don't have to really explain who MasterCard is, but can you give our listeners a bit of a background about your role at MasterCard and how cross-border falls into that?
2: Sure. Well, you know, everybody knows MasterCard, and I'm probably the only person at MasterCard who knows nothing about how cards work, which is probably why I ended up here. So I'm responsible for MasterCard's um, cross-border services business. I joined about three and a half years ago, so a a little bit of context in terms of how the industry works, and we're responsible for growing out, you know, part of MasterCard's non-card business franchise.
0: Really interesting. Interesting that you're the only guy at Mastercard who doesn't know about cards. Somebody has to. Yeah. Also making their FinTech Insider debut, we've got Bill Thomas, the Chief Member Operations Officer at UNFCU. Thanks for being here, Bill.
3: Thanks so much, Guerra. For those who don't know the acronym, UNFCU stands for United Nations Federal Credit Union. So we're the credit union for uh, United Nations employees worldwide. About two-thirds of our members are overseas. We're based in New York City. And, you know, we've been around, we're going to celebrate our 75th anniversary this year. So maybe the opposite of a fintech, but, uh, you know, uh, we've uh, tried to evolve over the years to to help the changing needs of our global membership. Um, You know, we really, we have members who are in uh, situations where maybe there's um, unrest. Um, you know, Maybe there's financial instability. So we really want to make sure that we're able to serve their needs no matter where they are in the world. So cross-border is a huge part of what we do uh, and how we try to give our members peace of mind.
0: Awesome. And finally, making up our panel, it's a debut appearance, again, also for Nashad Contractor, the CEO at Fable FinTech. Uh, Nashad, thanks so much for being here. Can you give us a brief summary of Fable FinTech, please?
1: Sure. Uh, so thank you very much for having me. I am Nashad. I uh, run a company called Fable FinTech, which is, uh, we prefer to call it a FinLogic company because in technology, there is techno and logic and many people focus on the tech, but they forget the logic. So we're like more Fin FinLogic company, which is focused on predominantly cross-border payments. I was coincidentally one of the founders of the world's first digital cross-border money transfer company in 2000 called remit to indiacom And since then India has been the number one remittance receiving country in the world. So yeah, cross-border has been really close to all our hearts and uh, today, Fable powers nine of the top ten banks in India who process cross-border transactions.
0: Wow, that's huge! All right, well, thank you. So let's uh, let's begin by looking at where we are with cross-border payments at the start of two thousand and twenty-two. Where we are right now. So I'm going to start with Stephen. So Stephen, can you give our audience a brief intro into what exactly do we mean by cross-border payments?
2: Sure. So you know, cross—you know—we all know what a payment is. I mean, cross-border a cross-border payment is just a slight extrapolation of that. It is about receiving money in one jurisdiction. Moving that money and paying it to somebody else who sits in another jurisdiction—that can be done. That's a cross-border payment, and it might also involve a currency movement as well, so a foreign exchange transaction. People who undertake them are—we've you know, talked a little bit about remittances. No men talked about that, but you know, cross-border payments are, are accessed by everybody, by individuals, by businesses of all different shapes and sizes to be able to support trade and commerce. You know, to support remittances and disbursements and a whole range of different use cases that that where we think about how we might want to move money domestically, there is the same number, if not more, use cases that require money to be moved across borders.
0: Yeah, and so Nushad, you have mentioned that you you've you've worked uh, with, in India as well. Um, can you give us a bit more context? Not only just India, but who who's using cross-border payments? Except for indi- like individuals, businesses. Like what what does what do these people look like? What is what are these use cases?
1: So right from a very large company paying for importing coal for for fueling their factories, or you know Bra- Brazilians exporting sugar, or as simple as a dentist importing a dental chair in India from Germany. All these transactions require cross-border payments. And during the pandemic, new use cases have been kind of you know springing up. Uh, people had a French teacher in India, that French teacher went back to work from home from in France, and now she needs to be paid by a cross-border payment because in India she was paid in rupees domestically, but now she's moved to France. So if the guy still wants to continue taking French classes from this lady, he has to pay her now in euros, which is a cross-border transaction. So like Stephen absolutely appropriately said, Any reason for which you need to send the money abroad, whether it's to support your kid studying in a foreign school or whether it's to pay the fees for that school or whether he then starts making money and sends money back to you or to his bank who's given him a loan to take this education in the first place. It's such an interlinked, you know, uh, ecosystem. It's very difficult to kind of uh, talk about it in such a short period of time, but it's definitely going to explode. And I genuinely believe that cross-border transaction technology is really required for transactions that are about 250 thousand dollars or less. The very, very large value, hundreds of millions of dollars of import and export payments are kind of taken care of or the need for disruption is a little less over there. But any payment, whether it's for business. So the four types of predominant payments are person to person, person to business, business to person and business to business. And in some cases it's either business or person to government and in some cases government to person or business like an income tax refund is a government to person or a government to business payment just to give you an example and all these four or five types of payments need the the, the, the need is domestic as well as it, as cross-border so uh, going forward the world is going to get more globalized and hence the need for cross-border payments is going to be really spiraling through the
2: roof
0: yeah i think Like, definitely, um, there is like a a gap here, but I'm going to come to you, Bill, real quick, just with regards you mentioned earlier about the the types of members that UNFCU has and the the challenges they face. So can you just give a bit, shed a bit of light on any, like, what what kinds of struggles are people facing, like, really on a human level, accessing cross-border payments?
3: Yeah, we see this every day. So, for example, you could have someone who is a maybe Ugandan national, they're working in Afghanistan, their child's going to school in Canada, they're getting paid into their UNFCU account in New York. So, we've got to make sure they can get their money from. New York to Canada, but you know you have someone who's located in Afghanistan trying to send a payment. That can cause some uh, friction in the system, uh, as you as you might guess. So you know trying to find solutions, especially where, where people are maybe located in an area where there there could be conflict or economic sanctions, for example, uh, is a real challenge. Um, additionally, what we're finding is that, uh, and particularly in Africa, the you know the payment systems there sort of skipped over a lot of the banking uh, payment systems that we had in the United states and so their expectation of sending a payment on their on their cell phone to get it to the person next door they expect their cross border payments to be that way too so they don't understand why can't i send money from Kenya to the UK, uh, just uh, just as quickly as I can send it to the person sitting next to me. So, trying to manage those expectations, meet the needs, uh, deal with any kind of again economic sanctions, uh, any kind of government regulations, uh, it, it makes it makes it very challenging. And we want to deliver that experience to to the members, and and I can see what's happening in fintech now. They're trying to address address that problem really aggressively.
0: Yeah. I, so, I mean, okay. So let's let's also look at like other. I want to. Come to Steven again as well. So we've we've heard about these, these kinds of these kinds of customers and these people who are having these challenges, right? MasterCard specifically, when we think of MasterCard, we all think of debit cards credit cards right like the actual cards you first person for mastercards tell me that you are not working in the cards department can you tell me a little bit more about how mastercard moves money right now so like all oh, i in my brain you know if, if i was to even ask my mom maybe you know she'd think oh if i was doing cross border payments with mastercard i have an american debit card i'm going to take money out in kenya or i'm going to take money out in wherever like that that's a cross-border movement of, of money but what, what what else does it look like with, with the work that you're doing at mastercard yeah
2: look, we play an intermediary role and in, and an aggregator of flows so you know we'll have customers and those customers are originators
0: they could be banks it could be a firm and they'll have clients that sit on
2: the end of them what what will end up happening is that in money terms they're sending real money to MasterCard so they're taking a a payment instruction from a customer I want to move money from the US to Nigeria someone's going to pay us dollars right physically into an account that we own and we're going to. We're going to convert those dollars into Nigerian Naira and pay them away to a, to a third party, a bank that we have a relationship with in Nigeria. In the middle of all of that is a series of processes that need to be undertaken to ensure that you can move that money effectively, that you are compliant with with meeting international law, sanctions requirements, money laundering requirements. You know, if there's FX to be undertaken, there's FX to that there's FX that's performed. That reporting goes out to regulators. We are a regulator participant in that business. So, and that's how, in in simple terms, that's just about the same way that anybody else would operate in that role, where they're sitting in the flow of funds.
0: Right, Nushad, you were nodding your head as as Stephen was saying that. Can you give us a little bit of like insight into your experience? Because you you've had a, I'm sure, a storied uh, passed within within the cross border payment space. So when when Stephen talks about the regulatory and compliance stuff, what is a snapshot of what that looks like? What are the components that go into um, moving money across borders?
1: So the, from a purely compliance perspective, the easiest way to explain this to people is to say no Osama, no Obama. So neither people who have got bad reputations nor politically exposed people are basically allowed but that's only person to person. There's a whole list of things that needs to be done for when it's a a company or a trade related transaction in terms of documentation, so many things are there. Remittance or cross-border payments is basically a corridor specific business. So a platform that powers money transfer from the United States needs to be flexible enough and so does the parties involved such as Mastercard or Swift or whoever does that where they know that the money transfer from the U.S. to India has very different rules from the money transfer from India, from the U.S. to Pakistan, as an example, or to Afghanistan or to Kenya. And that's where, you know, it becomes a slightly more complex business because in a domestic transaction, everything is from A to B within the same country. Whereas here, different rule for India, different rule for Pakistan, different rule for Bangladesh, different rule for Kazakhstan, so on and so forth. Part number one. Part number two, it's uh, it's also very important to understand and realize that the so-called transparency that everybody talks about is very difficult to actually achieve. It's very easy to write about it or, or, or talk about it, but it's very difficult to actually achieve it. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the big things that uh, systems like MasterCard uh, cross-border will bring, at least for the ecosystem players. How transparent the bank is finally to their customers, nobody can have control over that. But uh, but I think transparency is a big win for systems like Mastercard cross border as
3: well. One of the things I wanted to add after hearing you know S- Stephen and Nishad talking is there's also volatility in local banking regulation. So you know Stephen had mentioned Nigeria. I'm like thinking back to late 2020 when the central bank said, okay, we just want to get you know some hard currency in here. So. For all of a sudden, if our members wanted to send local currency there, we couldn't, and our providers couldn't provide that service to them. And we see that happening. We just had it happen uh, last month with a, with another country in Western Africa. So, you know, being able to respond and be agile and respond on the fly, and a member who says, "Okay, I'm going to send this these funds here." And today they can do it. Tomorrow it's like, oh, we can't send that any month. Maybe you can send some U.S. dollars, or you're limited on how much you can send. That type of thing. So managing that in a real time environment is is also a real challenge. Again, going back to meeting the the, the members' needs, we, we call our customers members. So if I say member, that's what I mean. But you know, meeting those members' needs, we could do it one day. Some days we can't, and we've got no control over it. So so working with a partner, you know, such as Mastercard, because we do partner with Mastercard for some of our cross border payments. Um, you know, it's really we have to work together together. together to uh, address these problems as they come up. And they do come up more frequently than you might think.
1: The example you gave of your mother going to another country and withdrawing money, the whole objective of systems we are all collectively building is for that not being necessary anymore. The whole objective of creating systems like we are creating is for no need to actually withdraw money there. You can pay directly cross-border from your store of value in the U.S. to a store in Kenya, or or you can pay for a ticket to the Louvre from your account in the U.S. or U.K., and so on and so forth. So the whole, the whole objective of creating these technology-based solutions is for not having the need to withdraw money anymore in the foreign country at all.
2: Uh, and that's a good point. Look, you know, there is, um, yeah, one of the things we've seen through the pandemic is a, a real digitization of cash. You know, not everywhere, because obviously in some jurisdictions, cash will, will prevail for a very long time. Right? But, um, uh, and that's in part due to infrastructure requirements or even cultural requirements but for most part, we've seen an awful lot of demand to be able to move away from, you know, payments where there might be a cash out at the end of that value chain to receiving into a store of value, as Noshad said, you know, and ensuring that, that that the value stays within that within that wallet or bank account or or whatever that value store is.
0: Yeah. And you know what, like, I think this is a, also like a, a, a segue into like thinking about like some of the challenges, Cause I think sprinkled through this conversation. We've we've mentioned, of course, the utopic idea of of the day that I can just pay for my Louvre ticket with my, you know, Venmo or whatever, or like M-Pesa um, account that I have from Kenya. But let's, let's look at the challenges that, that we still have to overcome and what opportunities present uh, themselves uh, for, for, for to solve these challenges. Stephen, I'm going to start with you um, again. So can you tell us a little bit about the Financial Stability Board's roadmap for enhancing cross-border payments? What is that?
2: Sure. Before I get there, I just want to come back on one of the things that Nosha said earlier, because I think it's very, very relevant. Uh, around about 80% of all payments in the world are for a value under... $100,000, you know, and no used to value $250,000. In that benchmark, they are, they are nuisance payments in the sense of how payments have historically been processed, right? They, are, they don't work very well through the typical correspondent banking channels, if you like, of being able to move money. You only have to try and do it yourself to realize the pitfalls of not knowing where your money is, you know, not having clarity if you put the right bank account details in. Um, it's just there's, there's a real lack of transparency and user experience that's wrapped around that. And so when we think about that, we think about that as under a banner of a burning platform. That's where, you know, the huge growth in payments over the course of the last 10 years have all been in lower value payments. Look at the rise of gig economy. Look at the, look at the you know, the, the dominance of e-commerce. You know, in an e-commerce environment, most people don't know where, where money is actually moving to but quite often and increasingly it's moving cross-border. So I think the G20 picked up on this, or the Financial Stability Board picked up on this and said, you know, initially the use case was it's expensive to be poor. Look at, you know, if you're trying to move, if you're trying to remit money, you know, as a on a person-to-person basis from one jurisdiction to, you know, say a, a, an exotic corridor, you might be paying six, seven, 800 basis points. Right, that's 800 basis points of cost that is lost upfront in the value of the payment that's going to be remitted to the to the end beneficiary, and so that motivated this this work from the Financial Stability Board of actually how do you make cross-border payments, just like domestic ones, easier, cheaper, faster to be able to go and process, um, and so you know, what they've really honed in are you know the frictional challenges, so frictional challenges that you know. Come from, you know, our, our banking systems open, our our payment systems open. To, you know, why is it that, you know, banks and intermediaries don't have common AML frameworks, right? What, how, why is there so much cost bound up in sanction screening? These are all things that need to be done along the way that add layers of cost into processing of payments And so, the, the Financial Stability Board have identified. They intend 19 areas to go away and drive improvement around, and that's going to be primarily led between the public and the private sector. And within that, you know, there are you know there are starting to be you know the emergence of some solutions that you know go beyond the pure fiat way of, the, of operating. We think about what it means to move money to you know how do you, how might you use new multilateral payment platforms? How might you start to you know, introduce uh, digital tokens? as part of the as part of the processing chain. So there's a lot there Try, but all under the banner of how do you make payments more
3: efficient in the way that they in the way that they process cross border.
0: Yeah, and there's so much holding people back. Bill, you have something to say. Go ahead.
3: I do. Uh it, maybe it's because I you know work at a place associated with the UN, but I also see how this can be uh, viewed through the lens of the um, sustainable Development Goals from the UN, particularly reducing inequality within and among countries. You know, we need to make sure that anything we're doing has ubiquity, accessibility, that it's not excluding anyone. You know, I think about the the, the discussion with cash, but just to make it easier for someone to have a device they have or something that they possess that, that they don't have to ship a you know a card around the world um, to to get it to someone. So again, we we I think it's important to see how what we're working on uh, as we look at the future of cross border payments how we we can work to support some of these uh, uh, SDGs from the United Nations because I think that's a really important thing as well. Because we can't just have it for certain countries or certain areas or certain populations of people. We need to make sure that it's it's you know a rising tide lifts all boats. So we need to make sure there's inclusion there. I think
2: the financial inclusion point is really important, but you know I think it's it's a, it's a view that we share. I share in particular that part of the problem of solving how do you solve for cross border payments is about how do you improve financial inclusion in the market where the payment is being originated and in the market where it's being terminated. You know, in a world where part of the reason there's so much cost in remittances is, is in part because the people who are remitting and, and paying money in somewhere to, for it to be taken out in cash have no option in terms of how to go and do that. So they are they're, they're a captive audience to somebody who wants to charge four, five, six, seven. 800 basis points to be able to go move that money. If the, if there were yeah. better infrastructure, you know, and infrastructure could be broad. I'm not saying it could be real-time payments. It could be other stores of value. Um, but if you've got better infrastructure in in originating and terminating markets, you've got more options in terms of how you solve the problems around money distribution.
0: I think I agree. And and touching on financial inclusion and, you know, the fact that it's, it's expensive to be poor, right? Like, no, Shad. I want to touch on something you said earlier about uh, how you know cross-border payments in large volumes is already kind of catered for. There's there's uh, infrastructure there, and it's it's not a there's no there's no real barriers. Um, I want to like look at like P two P. Right, we were talking about like you know person to business, uh, person to um, person. Is that how much value is locked up right now? How much value do you think is locked up in the the fact that it is it's really hard and it, people are being held back by cross border payments? For example, international payments normally take what two to five business days to clear. The time frame is also dependent on like where the funds are being sent from. Can you just take a you know just take us down the road of like what is being locked up in in value?
1: Sure. So um, the reason why the price to the customer is high is because the cost to the service provider is high. And the reason for that is inefficiency. That's all. It's actually very simple. If we are able to reduce, you know, like in e-commerce, we always say we want a one click purchase. Similarly, why should there be five hoops that a remittance has to go through, two intermediary banks, two correspondent banks, so on and so forth. Just to give you one example, there are many such things. The problem in many cases is that, you know, it's really difficult to wake up somebody who's pretending to sleep. Uh, And, and, you know, the many times uh, the the institutions that are processing these transactions are actually just pretending to sleep. They don't want to change anything. And it requires, I mean, to, uh, you know, Stephen's point, to make it cheaper, it has to also be cheaper to to run. You can't run a business in loss forever. And that kind of thing will be brought in by technology. The inefficiency remains in large value transactions. But to bear a, a $200 extra cost for a $20 million transaction is much easier than to bear... Of $10 extra cost for a $200 transaction and that's where this whole thing kind of covers up, it comes into being. The important thing we still have to look at the other side which I mean I used to run Mpesa for Vodafone for a long time so I know this firsthand. You also can't serve these guys uh, sustainably if it's not profitable. So while we should reduce the cost definitely we have to make sure it doesn't become zero otherwise the incentive to serve them becomes zero. So the, the idea is to reduce the price of money transfer Without affecting the margins too much, and as of today, the margin even at those eight hundred basis point uh, price points that Steven says many times, the margin is just hundred basis points because there's six hundred or seven hundred basis points of inefficiency in the platform, and and trust me, there there is no there is no silver bullet about uh, you know saying technology is the only savior. I think it's a combination of will, you know. In in Kenya, I, I can tell you, it was it was the CEO of Vodafone. Michael Joseph's will to make it happen. He just said, I'm going to make this happen and it happened. So apart from it being the will of a few people, then technology and then help from the sustainable development goals, kind of guidance from the United Nations, taking it upon themselves, large banks, companies like MasterCard, that's how this problem is going to get solved. Technology is a very important but not the only significant kind of brick in that wall which we're trying to build.
0: Yeah so I think it we can think about you utopia of of this you know these hurdles being taken out of people's way who like who's the onus on is this a situation that we should get the UN to step in like who which bodies are going to work together um, you know, to like, does it take collaboration? Does it take directives? Like, you know, for example, in Europe, there's PSD2. Um, what, in your opinion, you know, to the panel, what do you guys think is is gonna, what will it take for this to be standardized or at least like the headache slightly removed from these inefficiencies?
1: Yeah, you know, like in, in many developing countries or third world, apparently third world countries, we've, we've skipped the whole pager and voicemail part of telecommunication. You know, From landline, we've gone straight to mobile and that's a good analogy to put in cross border payments as well can we somehow skip the whole thing of having to go through correspondent banking for no reason can we skip having five hoops in creating a transaction can we make sure that somebody who's proven to be uh, a good guy can you whitelist that up to a certain amount of money i mean i don't want to get into too much technicality and jargon but the point is innovation will drive this whole thing uh, in in the future the The big big hanging sword on everybody's neck in the cross-border transaction business is anti-money laundering, and that's kind of holding back a lot of the big banks from getting into this business and and taking their rightful place in the value chain. Many, many, many large banks across multiple jurisdictions don't do this business. They 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 will open a bank account and support, say, transfer-wise, but they'll not do the business on their own, as an example, and both are just examples. So... Somebody in the regulatory department also has to go a little easier on these guys saying, if you've been diligent enough, if you can prove diligence, then if a transaction goes through, which is not appropriate, that's, that's fine. At least we were diligent about it. So there is, there are these multiple working points. uh, No, uh, I think that's the critical point.
0: So diligence on both. So Bill, I'm going to come to you. Would this be diligence on both sides? Like what, what kind of, um, what kind of solutions do do you see?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a similar thought to Nishad. Um, I, I think innovation is, is driving it. You know, I I've worked in banking for thirty years, and um, I, I see that sometimes legacy providers don't necessarily have that incentive to say, "Yeah, I want to innovate." Because right now, if they're making really nice margins on something, they may not want to say, "Okay, do, am I comfortable reducing my?" Uh, Margins by twenty five percent or or twenty percent. So until they feel a pain point, they're they're not going to do that. Meanwhile, innovation with fintechs and other providers is you know is lowering the price and and sort of forcing competition. And we can see it in our in our business. Um, there's a lot of providers out there uh, that are well known to to everyone. And you know if a member says, hey, this bank X is too high, then or you know credit union X is too high, I'm going to try this one. Once they've done it, we've lost them as a as a customer. So I think I think you know. Open banking, PSD two is is a great way to to help facilitate that and maybe accelerate the process. But I definitely think that the innovation from uh, you know new entrants into the market um, is something that's really going to drive down the uh, you know the the expense for the end consumer. And I, I'm looking at it mostly from a P two P standpoint because that's my business line. But I think that's really what's driving it.
2: No shot touch on something, and, and, and I you know Bill's spot on. Innovation will play a role. Innovation already is playing a role. Right? There is you, you only have to look payments broadly cross-border as well, how much money is flowing into organizations and fintechs and firms who are trying to drive new ways of sort of dealing business and removing inefficiency. But the optimal way to take that cost down and deal with that inefficiency is by the public authorities stepping in to help drive areas where only they can influence. And I'll give you an example. We have talked a lot on this uh, on this podcast today about um, about anti-money laundering and sanction screening. right? In, in a lot of payments, what you see is it's a, there seems to be a race to the bottom on price. If I think about anti-money laundering and sanction screening, actually, it's a race to the top. It's who's got the most conservative policy because there is also a little bit of an unlevel playing field in terms of you know banks are the guys who get clobbered with big fines because they've not performed well there, but that's not being applied equally across the board. And I think... If, if the focus there is how do we want to get to a better place, then we've got to find a way to normalise, you know, anti-money laundering frameworks, to normalise sanction screening lists and make those processes easier to interpret and more standardised, not continually just add complexity into them. So, yeah, I'll give you one other example that's not payments related, but at the turn of... At the turn of this last century, so only 21 years ago, 21 full years ago, there was an exercise performed in the European Union to remove the similar kind of frictions in securities markets. Again, the the public bodies and the private bodies coming together to try to drive improvement. The private organisations actually removed all of their barriers, but areas like how to standardise taxation, how to deal with stamp duty, are still all prevalent. There is no, there's no common framework for thinking about those, and so, you know, those regulatory frictions, the policy. Ref- frictions, they still exist and it and it requires people it requires those authorities to step up and be brave to solve those issues, I think.
0: It's a nuanced problem, yes. And and we, we can go on and on about this, but I I do want to take a pause here. Um but right after this we're gonna kind of get into like a, a, a future state kind of discussion um because I think you guys are all kind of chomping at the bit to like talk about like what this is gonna look like in the future. All right so we're gonna take a quick pause here and be back very shortly.
1: Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch
3: now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11fs.com forward slash decoding. Enjoy.
0: So let's look forward to what's possible with cross-border payments going forward and into 2022 and beyond. So from the latest developments to truly blue sky thinking. Um, So I want to start by saying the statement that like EY, so Ernst & Young claims that cross-border payments is ripe for disruption. And I think we all agree on this call. I I don't think this is a debate. But what interesting developments have you seen in in emerging markets, for example? So there's a a growing focus on emerging markets in Africa, LATAM, uh, and Asia, and as their share of international transactions increase. Stephen, what is MasterCard seeing as the... Biggest sort of the most compelling opportunity in in these spaces.
2: I mean, you said it. I mean, there, there's so much. There's so much going on. There's so much opportunity to drive improvement here. But you know, there are some really interesting initiatives that are that are, have been kicked off. I only have to look at the Northern Triangle initiative um, in in Latin America where. Camilla Harris has pulled together a whole range of organisations to help think about how do you know we're under a banner of how do you drive more stability in the region, but how can we how can you improve money flows in, into that area? And so we're talking about you know places like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. You know there is a there's a really big focus there in terms of you know how can we how can we think about the process very differently to drive very different outcomes in terms of in terms of as I said under a banner of. You know, how do you make economies more stable and, and thereby reducing the reliance on the migration to the U.S.? That's what's driving, that's what's driving, you know, the U.S.'s point there. But how do you drive more inward wealth accumulation um, is, is, is one really compelling use case. And I'm sure Bill can talk a lot about Africa
0: and UNFCU, for example. So. Yeah, I, I was going to come to Bill because, Bill, I'm sure a large portion of your of your members are on the continent of Africa and like across the global south. What do you think are really, what, what's the future of, of cross-border payments in in these regions?
3: You know, we we've seen great success in some of our mobile money. Uh, initiatives, You know, partnering with with MasterCard for M-Pesa is, is one example. Um, but, you know, making making these cross-border payments, like I was mentioning earlier, almost seamless, like they are, you know, just sending money to a friend is really helping uh, there. And, you know, we have focus groups with our members uh, from time to time, and, you know, they've t- t- shared with us that it's a real lifeline for them to be able to, you know, quickly, inexpensively move funds from, you know, their bank account here in New York uh, over to, you know, their uh, their phone account. In uh, in you know Kenya or Uganda or wherever it may be, and so you know facilitating that uh, and facilitating that peace of mind, the, the more we can do that, I think that's going to um, you know if we can replicate that model in more places around the world, I think that's going to you know be what our members want that fast, efficient, secure um, you know uh, ability to transfer money without wondering am i going to get it how long is it going to take you know what's you know are there going to be fees reduced along the way uh, all that ambiguity and that lack of knowledge <laughs> come, you know does not lend itself to uh, peace of mind so uh, i think that's where that, that's what we're seeing uh, happening and that's what we're looking for
0: uh, Nashad, I'm gonna come to you. Um, just you know, with with you mentioned, we talked about uh, corridors before. Bills mentioned, you know, talking about corridors of money movement. Is there room for like further specialization in 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 this area? So like for example, there's a company called Clasha, uh, a Lagos and San Francisco based startup, that sees a niche in cross border commerce and provides multiple integrations and apis to facilitate transactions between africa and the usa so like africa obviously broad 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 54 countries but definitely that's a corridor that exists is there a specialization that can be profitable even in 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 cross border market payments in the future
1: absolutely there's there's i mean it's it's uh, it's just the next progression you know Uh, there is a generalization and then there is uh, kind of but it's like um, you know in, in medicine there is a You know, orthodontist and orthopedic surgeon and that kind of stuff will happen in this business as well. Fable as an example has got like 14 different platforms. One is for e-commerce, one is for cross-border buy now pay later, one is for just shipping companies paying their sailors across multiple uh, countries, one is for direct importers making import payments easier and getting uh, their imports automatically assigned to the import infrastructure and the import governance of the country. So I mean, there's there's no question about it. That's the only way this is gonna gonna go. How fast depends on country to country. That thing I was telling you about the you know we skipping the pager and the voicemail revolution, uh, while while going from directly from landline to mobile. In India today, payments happen real time, twenty four seven. It's not as efficient in many countries. It's gonna take its own time. But uh, can we, as the people who are trying to change this business, at least? make the most optimal use of the best possible resources available in each country? If that, are, if the answer to that is yes, we would have done our job in the short to medium term.
0: All right, so I'm going to pose one question to the panel, one final question really, which is, what's one trend? If you could pick one trend that we should be looking out for in 2022 when it comes to cross-border payments, what would it be? Stephen?
2: There's a lot of talk right at the moment um, about the emergence of tokens in the value chain. I don't think we're going to get to the point where tokens prevail as the dominant form of the ability to be able to move money. But I think this year is going to be the year where, you know, we see more and more discussion, more and more practical applications around, you know, the use of tokens, you know, the the desire to move towards central bank digital currencies as a mechanism to, to revolutionize the, the whole payment landscape. Um, and, and we see, you know, India announced that they're a plan to do that this week, right. And that's, you know, in the, that country has been quite reticent towards crypto historically. So actually, you see that there is real, there's a real step change in thinking about how to fundamentally skip the pager, skip voicemail, and get to a much, a much differentiated outcome. So I, I think it's very difficult to see beyond that. I think I'm mean, going to have one other thing in there. Maybe it's it's not directly linked, but I, I think we and we've seen. The Bank of International Settlements and their innovation hub come out and talk about the the need for more multilateral payment systems that allow for the money and liquidity in particular to move in a much more efficient way. Um, And underpinning that would be a series of rules, schemes, if you like, that normalise the way that people operate and that the, the the outcomes are known before there are any inputs. So it's a rules-based mechanism, and that, and that lends itself as the next step in that evolution to thinking about the utilisation of tokens and central bank digital currencies, because then you can start to write smart contracts, X happens if Y happens, and, that, and so we'll see a real step change in that, in that way forward, I think, this year.
3: You know, two two things that I, I sort of see is, and it sort of relates to what Steve was saying, is this focus on interoperability. There's some, you know, uh, initiatives with the the Fed, you know, Fed Now, um, some uh, Fed Wire that that really underscore the significance of hey, these things have to talk together to make it, you know, efficient, effective, uh, seamless, that type of thing. So I, I think this concentration on interoperability is going to be key, and I think that also leads it lends itself to the discussion that Stephen was mentioning, uh, you know, crypto, blockchain stablecoins, CBDC, all of those things have the ability to help with that, you know, making that uh, transition more smooth, more seamless. Another thing that I think, and this is, you know, having a U.S. perspective, uh, since we have, uh, you know, uh, members around the world, we see what happens in other countries, other regions before they come to the U.S. I'm thinking like chip and pin for uh, for cards, you know, PSD2, open banking, that type of thing. The, the discussion points I see about open banking are, are happening more and more in the U.S. So I think that we need to be prepared, For that, I think we have a strong banking lobby that that will push that off as long as possible. But I think that's also going. I think that's also going to be something that will you know will drive uh, drive changes uh, in the environment. So those are my two things.
1: So uh, since our company is called Fable, I think I should I should uh, end with telling a story. And you know, many people believe that uh, the the hare lost the race to the tortoise because the tortoise was slow and steady. I can assure you, if the hare was woken up even 10 seconds before the tortoise crossed the finish line, he would have beaten the tortoise. What I'm trying to say with this is that, in my opinion, people who are absolutely best poised to get this thing done are the banks. And they're kind of currently sleeping. And we just, somebody, I don't know who that somebody is, 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 will need to wake them up. And I am seeing over the last six to nine months, I've seen a very different kind of focus from a lot of the large banks not just in the US, but also in Canada and Australia, uh, Southeast Asia who are now saying it's high time we woke up and high time we kind of took back what's rightfully ours. 95% of the automobile engineers in the world are trying to make the petrol engine more efficient. 5% or even less than 5% are saying just get the petrol engine out, put in an electric motor and make electric cars. And that kind of thought process shift is what's what I, I kind of sense that happening at many of the large banks. The only thing that will hold them back, like Stephen rightly said, is is that they are unfairly regulated. As long as there is a level playing field on the regulation, I think they will. That's what's going to happen in the next twelve to eighteen months. Banks will start bouncing back, and you know, kind of reclaiming the lunch they've lost to this whole fintech world.
2: I couldn't agree more with that. Actually, I just I've just got to underpin what notion has said there: the real opportunity, the emergence of a lot of a lot of fintechs and others who are filling the void is purely because the banks haven't yet determined that they want to step into that space. I think that if they, at the point that they do, I mean, they can—they really are the natural scale players in, in that story. And so, you know, we, we, we believe that, you know, the banks have got more of a role to play. I just want to say one other thing as well, which is, you know, innovation. We, we talk about innovation all the time. We always link innovation directly to technology, but innovation first and foremost has to start with being a mindset you've got to want to change, right? You've got to want to see that there is another answer out there. And, 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 it ha- and in my mind, it's got to start there. If we start from a place of saying, innovation is all about technology, we end up with the challenges we've seen with blockchain over the course of the last five to seven years, which is here's a technology, it needs a problem to go and solve. What we need to think about is what is the problem and then how do we fix it, not predetermine what the answer actually
0: needs to look like just wanted to, to like add a little uh note about like um J- jp morgan chase recently announced that they're going to be spending 12 billion dollars this year on fintech um so definitely th- they're waking up people are waking up so that wraps uh today's discussion i know we could go on and on and talk about this forever like you guys are all three of you are so passionate about this and it comes through so thank you so much for joining me um where can people find out more about you and your companies we'll start with you Stephen.
2: oh everywhere um you know Online, yeah, on LinkedIn. But,
0: you know, Granger at
3: mastercard.com. Please reach out to me. Absolutely. Uh, Bill? Um, unfcu.org is our website. It has all our information about uh, our history, our products and services. We're also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, We talk about what we're doing to help our members, what our foundation is doing, uh, actually, which I think is very important. So uh, that's where I direct people.
0: Awesome. And Nushad, where can people find out more about you and Fable? Yeah,
1: if they go Google Fable FinTech, they'll get our portal, which is www.fablefintech.com and my email id is nashad my first name at fablefintech.com
0: and for me, you can find me at 11FS.com uh, or 11FS Ventures. We're doing a lot of cool stuff there. I'm also on Twitter at notguera. Guerra. Um, so thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps make the show better and helps other people find it as well. Uh, and as always, you can join the conversation. So find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or just email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much and goodbye.
3: Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry-speak. So sometimes you just need a quick, human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.